Uh, as I said uh, this morning, we'll be in Ruth chapter 4, which Aaron read for us already. Did a great job with all of those names that we made her read in front of everybody. Um, Ruth chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up because we'll be back reading a few verses in that chapter. And as always, the uh, scriptures will be behind me on the screen or you can use your phone app or whatever works for you. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. Every time it's on TV, I get sucked into it. I can quote pretty much the entire thing. And uh, you can't help but cry at the end when Forrest is at the grave with Jenny. Um, but, you know, there are three specific scenes in this movie um, that are my favorite. They've always been my favorite for some reason. And for some reason, all three of these scenes include Forrest jumping into the water. Uh, and I love these scenes because they show how fiercely Forrest loves his friends and family or the people in his life. They show like just how he just loves them. And, and the water represents the fact that he loves these people with complete self-abandon. Complete self-abandon, all right? So my favorite scene in the whole movie is uh, where Forrest, he's on his shrimping boat. Um, and I'm assuming most of you have seen it, so if you haven't, I'm sorry. Uh, but Forrest is on his shrimping boat, and, and all of a sudden he sees on the dock Lieutenant Dan. And Lieutenant Dan is sitting there in his wheelchair. And if you remember, Lieutenant Dan is someone that made fun of Forrest. Uh, he was someone who would take advantage of Forrest, uh, belittle him. But that didn't matter to Forrest. Forrest loved Lieutenant Dan. And so when Forrest sees Lieutenant Dan on the dock, on his, when he, from his boat, he, he can't help but just jump straight into the water. It doesn't matter that his boat is about to crash into the dock. And he swims straight to Lieutenant Dan because he just has to see him. Like complete self-abandon, he loves this guy. The past, how he's belittled him in the past, didn't matter. Uh. Or the scene where Forrest and Lieutenant Dan, they're on the boat. They went into business together, were very successful. And then the radio call comes in. You know, Forrest, your mama's sick. And it just, Forrest doesn't, he, he doesn't even think. He dives in the water and he swims to shore. It doesn't matter how far out he is because he's going to go home to his mama. And he, he walks away from his business. He moves home to take care of his mama because he loves her. So it's complete self-abandon. Dive in the water, walks away from the business. Uh, or the last scene um, is when Forrest is back home from the war in Vietnam and he stumbles upon accidentally making this speech at an anti-war rally in D.C. And he's speaking and then he, he hears the voice of the love of his life, right? Jenny screaming at him. And if you remember Jenny, Jenny had rejected him already in the movie. She had said, Forrest, I don't want your love. I don't want your protection anymore. You know, go live your own life. She had gone off and lived this crazy lifestyle and just rejected him. There's a lot of hurt in the past between him and Jenny, but all he needed to hear was her voice, and he went running, jumping into the reflecting pool in D.C. to go and embrace her. The past didn't matter. He loves her with this fierce forgive and forget type of love. And one of the reasons why I think this movie is a classic and why so many people love this movie is because we see something in Forrest that we want to be. Just this ability to forgive others, forget about the past, be fully in the present, love others with no strings 
attached, to, to not allow the baggage of life to get in the way of joy from genuine relationship. See, this movie gives us a vision of someone who loved covenantally. Let me explain this. This is uh, loving someone and that love not being contingent on them loving you back. It's a love for someone at your own expense. Even if they don't love you back, the covenant doesn't break. And there's something about this that's beautiful, and I think it captivates us when we see an example of it in a movie or a story. But, you know, relationships aren't as simple as this movie portrays it to be. Forrest is a fictional character. He's a vision of something we would like to be, but relationships, they're complicated. And they're complicated because we can't help but approach relationships contractually. That is, my love for you, well, well, it is contingent on your love for me. It's about equity, right? I'll love you as long as you love me back or, or if I get something out of it. And the minute you do something to break the relationship, the minute you do something that's not loving, well, we just rip the contract up. It, it's over. And this morning as we study Ruth 4, we're going we're to see examples of covenantal relationships and contractual relationships. And we're going to see that one is designed by God and the other is a result of the fall. One brings blessing and the other will bring curse. But let me get all of us up to speed to where we are in Ruth chapter 4 in case you uh, have missed our first three sermons in Ruth uh, 1 to uh, 3. If you missed those, they're on our podcast on our website, and uh, I encourage you to go listen to those. But let me, let me just get us all up to speed on the story. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to this woman named Naomi. And she has a husband and two sons, and they move to Moab because they're escaping a famine in Israel. While they're in Moab, the, Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. Ruth is one of those women, so Ruth is from Moab. But also while they're in Moab... Uh, Naomi's husband dies, and so do her two sons. And so Naomi decides to move back to Israel, and Ruth decides to go with her back to Israel. And, and this becomes a very tough situation for both Naomi and Ruth. Both of these women are poor, they're both widows, and they both do not have any children. And in a patriarchal society, that's not a good situation for them. And it's even worse for Ruth, who's an immigrant. She's an outsider. She's a Moabite coming in to live in Israel. But Ruth is determined to take care of Naomi. So then we enter chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Ruth goes to glean in the field of Boaz. So gleaning was this provision for the poor in Israel where uh, someone who was poor could go and gather crops left over in a field after someone went and harvested the crops, And so that's what Ruth goes to do to get food for her and Naomi. And she happens to glean in a field by, owned by a guy named Boaz. And Boaz approaches her and he just shows her this incredible graciousness and kindness and supplies her with more than enough food than, 
Naomi or her need. And so Ruth goes home with all this food, and, and Naomi tells Ruth, well, Boaz, he's actually a relative of ours. We're related to this guy, and he could actually redeem you. And so let me remind you of what that meant. This is referring to the practice of Leverite marriage. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy 25. But if you're married and your husband dies and you do not have a son to carry on the name of your first husband, then the brother of your husband, your brother-in-law, is obligated to marry you and the first child, the first son that you have will carry on the name of your first husband. All right, does that make sense? Even if that brother-in-law is already married, right? He has to marry you too. The first child you have, that will carry on the name of your first husband. This is so that the name of your first husband would not be forgotten and the inheritance stays in his name. All right, And so in chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth, you need to go back to Boaz and ask him to redeem you. Ask him to do this. And this is a big ask from Ruth. Uh, this is a big risk. Um, Ruth is a younger, poorer, immigrant woman asking an older, richer, Israelite man to marry her. That doesn't happen often in Israel. Maybe that was the only time. So this is a big risk, um, but, but Boaz agrees. He says in chapter 3 that he will redeem her, but, but there's one problem, and that problem is there's somebody else in the family who would be first in line before Boaz would be first in line. So chapter 4 opens up with Boaz approaching this guy who's first in line to redeem Ruth. So that's where we are in the story, and then we jump into chapter 4. And Aaron read chapter 4 for us earlier in the service. And the chapter opens with Boaz going to this guy at the city gates to ask him if he wanted to be the one to redeem Ruth. The, the city gates are typically where legal business was conducted. And so let's jump in. I want to read verses 3 and 4 for us again so we can look at this. Uh, Ruth 4, starting in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Boaz says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was Naomi's husband who had died in Moab. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the guy who was first in line said, I will redeem it. So apparently, there was some land involved in this deal as well. All right, This land was owned by Elimelech, Naomi's late husband. And that land would have been inherited by their son, Naomi and Elimelech's son, but they don't, they don't have a son. He's dead, and so is Elimelech. So this field is owned by Naomi, and apparently Ruth has some stake in this field as well. But Boaz doesn't mention this at first to this guy. He leaves that detail out. He just mentions the field. And so obviously when this redeemer hears of this, this opportunity, he's like, well, sure, I'll, I'll pay for the land. This is land that's already in my family. It's going to be a good investment. I'll, it'll add to my inheritance that I can pass down to my children. So of course he wants to buy the field. 
But then Boaz explains, well, there's one catch. Verse 5. He says, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So in other words, if you want to purchase the field, you also have to marry and redeem Ruth. You must perform this duty of Leverite marriage and preserve the name of Ruth's late husband, right? So this would mean that the field would stay with Ruth, that it would be Ruth's son who would inherit that field, not this guy's other children. It would stay in the name of Ruth's late husband, all right? So here's the deal. This transaction went from a deal that would increase this man's wealth to a deal now that actually decreases his wealth because he would have to pay for the field, he would have to pay to take care of Ruth, and he would not add anything to his inheritance. And so by the world standards, this was a good investment that turned into not so great of an investment. So in verse 6, it says, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This guy passes and allows Boaz to come and have the right to redeem Ruth. So this unnamed redeemer has an opportunity to be in relationship with Ruth, and he makes a calculation. He does some cost-benefit analysis in his head when it comes to entering into this relationship with Ruth. And obviously he decides that the expense to himself is too high for him to redeem Ruth and therefore he passes on the opportunity. And this is in stark contrast to the kind of calculations others have been doing in the book of Ruth. Think about this. Think about the calculations made by Ruth back in chapter 1 when she decided to remain faithful to Naomi instead of staying back in Moab. Right? Let's look at the cost-benefit analysis on that one. Right? In order for Ruth to stay with Naomi and move back to Israel, she would have to move from Moab to Israel and become an outsider, an immigrant in a culture that wasn't going to be welcoming to her. It would be more difficult for her to remarry and have children in Israel because she was an outsider. And she would be poor along with Naomi in Israel. Ruth could have stayed back in Moab where that was where she was from. She probably could have gotten remarried there and lived a comfortable life. But she stayed with Naomi. Right? In order for Ruth to stay with Naomi, the cost, the expense to herself was enormously high. And as far as she could actually see or predict herself, there really was no benefit to herself. But Ruth loved Naomi with a covenantal love, a promised love, not, not a contractual love. Uh, think about the calculations made by Boaz when he decided to redeem Ruth in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Cost-benefit again. Right? For Boaz to redeem Ruth, he would have to pay money to purchase Naomi's field. He would have to allow the inheritance of that field to stay in the name of Ruth's late husband. He would be bringing both Ruth and Naomi into his home and have to pay to take care of them. 
Not to mention both of these women were childless widows, and Ruth was a Moabite and not even an Israelite. So for Boaz to redeem Ruth, it would be enormous expense to himself. But he loved Ruth, and he redeemed her. See, in the book of Ruth, we see examples of both covenantal and contractual relationships. In God's creation of the world, he designed human relationships. He's the one who, who thought of them and designed them. And he designed them, he created them to be covenantal. And so before mankind fell into sin, our relationship with God was unhindered. We were with God. There was nothing that had gotten in between us. And because all of our needs and all of our desires were met in our vertical relationship with God, we were able to horizontally love the people around us at our own expense, expecting nothing in return. We got everything we needed from a relationship with God so we could love one another. And see, relationships are complicated and complex because they were never designed to operate contractually. Relationships were never designed as a tool for self-love. They were never designed to be something that we engage in and we do in order to get the other side to do something for us. Relationships were never designed to be that way. He didn't design them to be a I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back type of agreement. And when relationships are a tool for self-love, a way that we manipulate others so they'll love us back, they break down because they weren't designed to operate in that way. And when mankind fell into sin, when we rejected God, our relationship with God was broken. And when our relationship with God was broken, our relationships with one another also became broken. And now we primarily relate with one another contractually. With every single relationship we have, we do calculations, cost-benefit analysis. Is this relationship worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my energy? Is it worth my effort? What am I getting out of it? What are you doing for me? And our sin has turned us into consumers when it comes to our relationships. We're always evaluating, how do you give me joy? But Grace Hill, God has not called us to be consumers of others. He has called us to be servants. Not always asking, how do you bring me joy? But always asking, how can I bring you joy? He's called us to love others with this covenantal kind of love, a, a type of love that's, that's not contingent on you loving me back. It's a type of love that has no strings attached, always willing to forgive. A love that actually comes at great expense to ourselves. And when we hear that, I know it sounds too idealistic because we live in a fallen world. Right, if we approach relationships that way, we all think, well, man, I would just get trampled on. I'd get burnt out. 
Right? People will take advantage of you if you operate like that. But listen, see, the way the world calculates cost-benefit, it's completely upside down to how the kingdom of God calculates cost-benefit. And one of the things I want us to see here in Ruth 4 this morning is this, that there is great blessing when we engage in relationships as God has designed them to be engaged in, and there is curse. There is a curse when we engage in relationships the way the world does. God is the one who designed these relationships. And one of the things I love about Forrest Gump is not how fiercely Forrest loves others. I love how his fierce love brought redemption and change into others' lives. See, here's the thing. We think that this movie is all about the journey that Forrest goes on. It's not about Forrest's journey at all. The movie is about the journey of others and how they found change and redemption while Forrest stayed the exact same the entire movie. That's what it's about. And when we love others with a covenant love, we allow the relationship that I have with this person to become a context for redemption to occur. I mean, where would any of us be today if this were not true? Where would we be if God himself did not pursue us with a covenant love? Where would we be if God said, actually, let's make a contract? You do this, and then I'll bless you, redeem you, save you. But you gotta do this, and the minute you mess up, we rip it in two. Where would we be? We sinned against God. We reject his word, and yet God has pursued us, listen, at great expense to himself, in and through his son Jesus. He provides a way for our sin to be forgiven and our relationship with him to be completely reconciled at the expense of his son Jesus. Where would we be if God did not do this? I mean, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are loved by God and he loves you with a covenant love, not a contractual love. And my goodness, that is really good news for you today because you're gonna mess up. And you can't live life fearing that every time I mess up, maybe that was the moment where God rips the contract. I mean, he's not gonna cast you out when... Think about this, when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is crying that out because God, at that moment with Jesus on the cross, turns his back on his own son so he does not have to turn his back on us. And because God loves us with this covenant love at his own expense, we can now find redemption in our lives because God is always steady He's never changing. His love for us never changes. God doesn't emotionally react to our sin and decide to change his whole plan. He doesn't do that. He's steady and never wavers. And as those who are redeemed with our vertical relationship with God completely restored, we can now love others with this kind of covenant love. Not as consumers, looking to how others can bring us joy, but, but as servants, looking to how we can bring joy and redemption to others because we found our joy and our redemption in Christ. There is great blessing to us 
great blessing to us and others when we love in this way, with covenant love. The, the blessing kind of spreads. Uh, in Ruth 4, we see this blessing showered upon Naomi as a result of Ruth's covenant love and Boaz's covenant love. Uh, look at this in verses 13 to 16. I love this part. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law Look at this, your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, it's obvious that she loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I love this picture. Just remember in the beginning of Ruth, just how bitter and upset and depressed Naomi was. She had lost her husband, she lost her sons. And I love this in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, her grandson. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, father of David. Naomi started the book of Ruth empty and bitter, and she ends the book of Ruth full and rejoicing because of the covenant love that God showed her through Ruth, through Boaz. And now we have this beautiful picture of Naomi with her grandson in her lap. But this isn't blessing that's just showered on Naomi as a recipient of this covenant love. It's also showered on Ruth and Boaz. The entire book of Ruth is this story of this one small little family, this one little slice of time during the time when Israel was ruled by the judges. But at the end of the book, those last verses, what the author does is he takes and he zooms out so we can see Ruth's place in all of redemptive history. And look what it says. Don't let this just fly over your head. Look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. There we are. There's our place in the story. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. See, back in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that he would bring redemption to all people through Abraham's offspring in his line that Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, would come in that line. And so God not only used the covenant love of Ruth and Boaz to bring personal redemption and joy in their own lives into Naomi, he used it to bring about the gospel. I mean, this is part of that line of Christ, to bring joy and redemption to all mankind, right? To bring blessing to you and me. We are included in the blessing of this. See, Cost-benefit in God's kingdom doesn't work the way it does in the world. It's upside down. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He says, anyone who finds his life will lose it. 
right? If your life is all about you and your joy and your investment and what return you can get now and how I can get as much as I can from everyone for me, how do I make the best of my life now? I want my life to be good now. Anyone who's after that, you're going to lose it. Because it doesn't work like that in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is upside down. Actually, anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. There is joy in laying your life down for others as Christ has done for us. That's the way cost-benefit works in God's kingdom. This is covenant love. It perpetuates redemption and it comes with abundant blessing. But when we choose to make calculations in our relationships, the way the world does, it brings a curse. As Jesus says, when you seek to find your life, when you are primarily concerned about your own joy, when you're a consumer and just looking to others to bring you joy, well, you lose your life. It's interesting here in Ruth 4, we get a picture of this. You know, it's very deliberate that this first redeemer in the story, um, his name isn't listed. If you look at uh, Ruth chapter four, verse one again with me, you know, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And look, it says, and he, you see the word he, little pronoun, doesn't seem significant. And he turned aside and sat down. Well, sometimes this is where a little Hebrew study is helpful because in the Hebrew, it's not just the simple Hebrew pronoun for he. It's a larger phrase. And that literal translation of that phrase would be something like, and this certain unnamed person turned aside and sat down. The author of the text is signaling to us here that he is deliberately concealing his identity in the story. He had an opportunity to bring redemption to Ruth and Naomi. He had an opportunity to be included in redemptive history, yet he made a calculation. The cost, the inconvenience, it was too high. He figured by protecting his life instead of serving others, he would find his life. And the message of the text is, is that he lost it. He's forgotten. This is contractual love. And instead of perpetuating redemption, it perpetuates brokenness. It creates a context where relationships break down. And so we should, we should all ask ourselves, in our relationships, do we love covenantally or do we love contractually? In our relationships, are we consumers really only concerned about what I get out of it? Or are we servants concerning ourselves with what we can give others? If you're married, what would describe your relationship? Are you constantly doing the calculations Constantly keeping score. You know, is your marriage a, hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back type of agreement? Kind of everything you do is that. Well, I'll make dinner if you do the dishes. I'll put the kids down if you do this. I'll do this if you do that. And you're just always trying to one up. 
Are you only concerned with your joy in the relationship? Right? Are you seeking to find your life at the expense of your spouse's life? Or are you willing to lose your life and your desires so they can have theirs? Are you willing for your spouse to have joy at your expense? Because when you said your wedding vows, you did not vow to a contract. You vowed to a covenant. To be a servant and not a consumer. And when you approach every situation with a heart to serve and not consume, we create a context for redemption and joy and growth and change in a relationship. But when we keep score and do the calculations and do the cost benefit, we create a context for bitterness and brokenness in that marriage. A truly happy marriage is one when both spouses are willing to serve the other and forgive the other at their own expense. And a truly miserable marriage is when both spouses are trying to get the other to do that. And so quick hint, if the only thing that you can think about right now is how much your spouse needs to hear it, you're the one doing the calculations. What about our relationships with our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, the people that we see day in and day out? Even relationships with people where we're just acquaintances. We don't really know them that well. Are these relationships something we view contractually? I just want you to envision this with me. Like envision the church in America today. I don't know how many churches there are in America. There's a lot. There's a lot of Christians. Just imagine if Christians in this nation began to see every one of their relationships covenantally. Where we said, how can I serve this person and make sure they get joy? What if we regarded everyone we met that way? And just imagine if everyone in the country did this. Imagine if you asked that question about every one of your coworkers. Every Christian who went to work tomorrow morning said, how can I encourage those people? How can I make sure today's a great day for them? How can I do something to make them thrive in their work? What if we began to put the success of others over and above our own success and we began to do cost-benefit according to the kingdom of God and not the world? Like, what would happen if every person who calls upon the name of Christ began to live that way tomorrow? What if we forgave people quickly and we didn't hold on to grudges? What if we began to love people with complete self-abandon at our own expense? Or, Or think about our neighbors. If we began just to do this with the people who live next to us, How can I serve them? How how can I help them have joy? What if we forgave people, even if they messed up, even if they did something really wrong, if we just became people who didn't hold on to that stuff but pursued meaningful relationship with them? Or if we just did this to the people that serve us in restaurants or people at the grocery store or whoever it is that we run into, instead of always doing the calculations, instead of always doing cost-benefit according to the world, instead of always keeping score or treating people based on what they can do for us, imagine if all Christians just went all in and loved our neighbors this way. Believing that God has placed us here as ambassadors to do this. Like that's 
your purpose? Let me honestly ask you this question. If you did that, do you think your life would be more joyful? Do you think the things that you would lose would really ruin your life? In committing to lose your life for the sake of Christ and out of love for your neighbor, don't you think you'll find it? And if you're only concerned about your life and your joy, don't you think you'll lose it? There is blessing in loving people the way God has loved us in Christ. I promise, it's, there's blessing for you in this. There's blessing in forgiving people and being faithful. I mean, imagine the brokenness and the sorrow you and I would feel if God loved us in the way that, if we're honest, we love most people. Conditionally, contractually, you know, if you mess up, contract's ripped up. But praise God, he doesn't love us that way. He loves us with a faithful covenant love that will never change because it's anchored in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here's my prayer, Grace Hill. My prayer is that we'll be a church that experiences the blessing of loving others the way that God has loved us in Christ. That we would experience the blessing of picking up our cross, of losing our life, of forgiving and forgetting of serving others at our own expense, forgetting the cost-benefit of the world. Just going all in, jumping in the water. Bringing redemption to a broken and angry world. This is something we can start doing today. And I'm gonna pray that we'll be a congregation, a family of people in this area that will live that way. Let's pray. God, the truth is there is no way we can live this way. There, there is no way that we can relate with all of our relationships in such a way where we love with no strings attached, where we love in, in such a way, Lord, where we don't expect anything in return, where we're quick to forgive, where we don't hold grudges, where we put others' interests before ourselves. There's no way we can live that way unless we believe with every fiber in our being that you, that is how you have loved us in Christ. That you have loved us at your own expense. So God, my first prayer is that we would be a church that cherishes this, that believes it, that encourages one another with this truth. Because it's only in this truth, knowing that our vertical relationship with you, God, has been perfectly reconciled in and through Christ, can we begin to love the people around us in this way. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that does this, that loves people well, that models this in our homes, loves our spouses, our kids, our roommates, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, Anybody else we run into that, Lord, we would be the most gracious, kind, st-
steady, unchanging people because, Lord, we serve a gracious, kind, steady, and unchanging God. Help us, Lord, to reach people in this area through our love. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's stand and respond. Come, 
Father, I pray that you would help us today, this week. Help us to know that true joy comes, Lord, when we serve others. That's just how you created us. It's where we are created to find life. And so I pray that we would see that and that you would give us the strength, Lord, to step out this week, to, to see ourselves, Father, ultimately as servants. And this is modeled so well in Jesus, Lord, where he came. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. God incarnate took on human flesh so that he might uh, serve us. And so if he, can, if he can do it, then Lord, we certainly can too. And so would you equip us and empower us to do this this week? Uh, God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Man, you can have a quick seat. Uh, thanks so much for gathering with us 
this morning. Um, again, if this is your first time here at Grace Hill, we're just glad you're here. Uh, we'd love to be able to connect with you. Um, or if you've never really gotten connected into the church and you'd like to get some more information or meet someone, um, I just invite you to go and chat with our Connect team in the lobby. You can fill out our tablet there, give us your email address. We'd be happy to get in touch with you this week to see if there's any questions um, that we can answer for you. And if you want to get on a newsletter, you can get on that as well. But a really good way to get connected here is through our community groups. Um, those will be meeting uh, this week. We do have community group, and so we have several throughout the area. So if you're not a part of a group, um, you can talk to our Connect team as well. They can get you more information. If you also fill out that form on that tablet, we'll also make sure we get in touch with you to see uh, which group you'd like to join this week. So that's just a great way um, to get involved. Uh, one thing, uh, one big announcement for today, uh, and that is uh, we have a night of prayer and worship and also a member meeting tonight. And so we're gonna be meeting back here at 5 p.m. Uh, tonight uh, at right here, Herndon Middle School, in the auditorium. We're gonna leave all the stuff up. We're actually gonna build the drum kit, I think, right, Nick? Drum kit. And uh, we're gonna have some time of worship and prayer. And then we're also doing a short member meeting as a part of that as well. And so uh, if you're a member, please make it a priority to be here for that. Um, if you're not a member, you're invited, member meeting and all. But for the majority of the time, we're going to have a good time of prayer and worship together. Child care is, is uh, provided. The only thing I'd ask, try to get here a few minutes early. We're going to get the member meeting part of it done uh, in the beginning parts. So then we can just kind of move into prayer and worship. So please get here a bit early because we're going to jump right in at 5 p.m. Uh, last thing is this. If you need prayer this morning, uh, we're gonna have prayer ministers up front. I believe that's Monty and Lori McCullough. And so they'll be up front uh, this morning if you wanna pray for anything. And also our prayer room is available to you as well. That's all I have. Thanks so much for gathering with us this morning. We love you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you tonight, five o'clock. Don't change your heart I am ever loved Cause you're never